9, 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to a special episode of Deep State Radio. This is a one-on-one conversation with a friend of ours, Sarah Kenzior, who has a new book, Hiding in Plain Sight. And, you know, before you listen to the podcast, go to Amazon right now, order the book Hiding in Plain Sight, because Sarah does in the book what she has done in her previous book, books and writing, and that is to draw attention to facts that were out there hiding in plain sight about Donald Trump, about Donald Trump's backers uh, in, in the Russian mafia and in the Russian government, uh, about all the things that should have led you to know that we were going to end up right where we are. Uh, it's essential reading, and we encourage you to, to, to turn to it. Sarah is also the host or co-host of the Gaslit Nation podcast, which we follow and think is a great podcast. Welcome, Sarah. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Uh, so, uh, I mean, th- th- there are a uh, long list of, of horrible things about the moment we live in, um, but I, I suppose one of the redeeming qualities of living in the lockdown era is that you don't have to go out and do a book tour in a lot of little bookstores all across America, stay in hotels, be away from your kids. That's, that's a plus, right? Well, I, I liked doing my book tour and I like being on the road. I like driving around. I like seeing different cities and I like meeting my audience. And I was, I was sad when that was canceled. Um, you know, I do miss my kids, but I was planning on, you know, possibly taking them along for some of the Midwest uh, part of the tour. But I mean, in, in the grand scheme of things, like it's very low on my, my list of worries, like what happens to my tour or my book or, or what have you, because we're facing so many crises. But um, I certainly wasn't, wasn't thrilled about it. And I appreciate you having me on to talk about it. Oh, no, uh, no. Uh, I, this is the kind of book that I know uh, will be um, exactly what Deep State Radio listeners are, are looking for. Um, and, uh, I read it. I, I thought it was a terrific book. Um, uh, it, you, you finished the book, uh, last year in the, in, in 2019. Mm-hmm. Um, but it sets us up for this year. And I think the, the question, the bridging question that I thought would be a good place to start is what is it in your knowledge of Donald Trump's past, um, and the impulses that he revealed over time? that would have led you to believe that he would handle his first major crisis the way he's handling this one? And he's doing the same thing he's done his whole life, which is attempt to profit uh, financially and in terms of power from a crisis, from chaos, and from death, uh, to which he has always shown apathy. And there are examples of this throughout his life. When 9-11 happened, his initial reaction was that his buildings looked taller. When the financial collapse of 2008 happened, he openly proclaimed excitement. In 2014, uh, two years before he, he began, to, or one year before he began to run for office, 
In an interview with Fox News, uh, where he was also praising Putin, he said that what makes America great again is if we have complete disasters, if the economy completely collapsed, we have riots in the street, then that will bring us back to a place where we're great. And so he's been very open about this. Uh, and it's also in line with, you know, interviews that I have in the book that go all the way back to the 1970s, pretty much from when he appeared on the national stage. And there have been many attempts to whitewash uh, the truth about him, uh, his sadism, his sociopathy, you know, varying from how the press covered him all the way through The Apprentice, through the campaign season. But he reveals himself and his backers uh, are the same way. They're not as flagrant, I think, um, in their, their apathy to suffer or their, uh, their desire to profit off of it. They're a little slicker uh, in covering it up, but they share it uh, and they're the brokers behind him and they often are, are making the big moves that, that he doesn't know how to make. Right, not all of his backers are sociopaths like he is. No, not exactly, uh, but they're certainly cruel. I mean, they, these are not oh. people who are looking out for the public good in any way, even though they are often in elected office. Right, they're, they're, they're greedy and yeah. and pragmatic and valueless and other things but 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 he's a sociopath and that's a different kind of thing just as he is a um a, a narcissist which yes. colors colors all of this um you know one of the things that struck me um uh it, you know in 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 reading the book is it may be that history looks back at trump's four years and focuses on 2020, focuses on a disaster uh, that is the biggest public health disaster in 100 years, the biggest economic disaster perhaps ever in U.S. history in terms of unemployment, and uh, that there is a, something unfortunate in that, in that it overshadows the original sin that got us here, the campaign of 2016, which I, I, I love the fact that in your book, you tie it all the way back into the mid 80s, mm -hmm. when the seeds were planted by Trump and Roy Cohn, by Rupert Murdoch, by Roger Ailes, with the Fairness Doctrine, with, and, and that you follow then through, through his late 80s trip to Russia, uh, and, and, and so forth. Um, and I'm just wondering, you know, as 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 you look at all that, um, how, you know, how how does COVID fit into the final legacy? You know, I think it's a continuation of the same theme, and I agree with you that this is going to be one of these definitive moments. If we're lucky enough to have a history, especially a history where we have freedom of the press, ability to express ourselves, not digital media that's erased by autocrats, which honestly is kind of how I unfortunately envision um, our future, but say we have history, they will look at 2020 as a definitive year for our economy, our political system, uh, public health, just mass tragedy, you know, kind of in the way they, they look at certain years in the 1930s, 1940s. Uh, but it is a continuation 
of streamlined corruption. Uh, it's a continuation of uh, a philosophy of government in the United States uh, that picked up certainly in the 1980s was kind of crystallized the whole, you know, let's drown government in a bathtub philosophy that we saw in the, the Reagan Republicans. Um, but, you know, uh, accelerated rapidly with every crisis, you know, 9-11 uh, helped make it more uh, easy to carry out anti-constitutional initiatives. The 2008 financial collapse allowed people to increase income inequality, to capitalize off of American pain. It's all part of a continuum. And, and what it's done uh, over time is remove public leverage. One thing that's very interesting about this moment is that the Republican Party, and especially Trump, are utterly unconcerned with winning the upcoming election. They know that people are scared. They know people are miserable. Trump knows that people are put off by his press conferences where he's not able to contain his sociopathic glee um, or his apathy toward the dead, uh, you know, on a stage. Uh, they don't care because they don't see this as a free and fair election. And I don't think they ever intended it for, for it to be a free and fair election. And that, of course, will prompt people to look at how he came into office at 2016 and at all of the different parties that uh, conspired to put him there through illicit means um, and who were never punished, who were never held accountable. We've had such a failure of that over the last four years. And, you know, we always had a limited amount of time. And I, I tried to emphasize that to people as we went along because I was afraid of this kind of worst case scenario happening. Happening, um, and now it's here. Well, yeah, and I think I, I think it's here. I'm not sure um, whether it's the worst case because I think it could get worse, right? Oh, absolutely, and, yeah, uh, yeah. Right, and and you know, one of the things you know I've thought about as we look forward is you know when we've had big upheavals like this in the past, um, it often produces certain kinds of lasting change. In the 1930s, in the wake of World War One and the Great Depression, here in the U.S., at least we had the the rise of the New Deal. It was a positive move. But in Europe, we had the rise of fascism. Um, now you can already see moves afoot that could take this crisis and turn it into a, an accelerant for certain kinds of uh, approaches that you might actually characterize as techno-fascism, fascism, fascism yes. 2.0, where in fact uh, the ethno-nationalists across Europe and in the United States and in Israel and some other places, um, uh, in Brazil, for example, and in India, um, uh, use this and technology and the excuse this gives you to shut borders, crack down on the other, uh, mm -hmm. uh, use facial recognition and other things to really suck all the right to privacy out of life and so forth. Am I overstating this threat? No, I was worried about exactly that. Um, before coronavirus happened, I was worried we were headed in the direction of China um, and their use of technology with things like facial uh, recognition with social crediting systems where you basically have to obey state directives or you could be denied employment, you could be denied resources. We now have people who are rightfully deeply frightened uh, and they're worried about their health and they're worried about you know getting tested for coronavirus, whether or not they're a vector, all of these things. 
uh, as of now, the government's sin has been to refuse to test people and to refuse to get that data and make that data public. But I worry very much about health data being weaponized. I'm worried about there becoming um, a caste system, basically, of Americans who can and can't get tests or Americans who are deemed uh, sick or who are categorized broadly as infectious groups, because we already see um, that certain ethnic groups have, you know, been more susceptible to this virus, likely because they're forced into jobs, um, you know, where they're out in public or where they're tightly packed together, like in a meatpacking plant. Uh, so you see a disproportionate toll taken on Black Americans, Native Americans, uh, Latino Americans who are working in factories. Uh, you know, the death rate is much higher. And I think that what Trump and his administration is doing and will continue to do is to scapegoat them as diseased, to also scapegoat uh, Chinese Americans. Uh, in China in general as diseased uh, to continue to seal the borders. I find it very interesting that they're not issuing passports. Like they're, they're telling everyone, go back to work, go out and about, open up your states. But they've just stopped issuing passports. So anybody who wants that just as a form of identification suddenly can't get it because they're deeming it too dangerous for the passport office, uh, which doesn't necessarily have to interact with anybody, uh, to go back to work. So that's alarming. Um, bars claim that he wants to put people in indefinite detention is alarming because one thing that happens in a crisis like this, and if the numbers go the way they're, um, you know, forecasted to go, which is an acceleration, like basically a 9-11 of coronavirus every day, people are going to get very afraid. Um, and in that fear and chaos, they can pull off a lot of autocratic policies without people even knowing, uh, you know, changes towards environment, changes towards public lands, um, all sorts of things that they can do. But yeah, as to your question about technology, I would definitely look at that. I would look at advisors um, like Peter Thiel or uh, Steve Bannon, who've been weaponizing technology for their political purposes and have been working in tandem uh, with the Trump administration. Yeah. And also one, one, another dimension of this, of course, is that massive amounts of data are being collected, but only a few people in society have the ability to process that data and use it, whether it's the government or some of these big companies. Uh, you know, I was in the Clinton administration, and I remember we had this kind of naive view, and we had naive views about a lot, by the way, and, you know, we can have a separate conversation about that. But one of them was that this rising internet phenomenon, the rising information revolution, was actually going to be democratizing. Mm -hmm. But what we've actually seen is a kind of a rise of techno-robber barons, you know, and that, that are collecting wealth. I think Jeff Bezos, in the course of the past six weeks of this crisis, has made $360 billion while firing people in Amazon who dare to raise a complaint about uh, working conditions there. Um, but, you know, that's only part of it. The other part of it is that if you've got massive computing capacity, you've got the ability to look at all this data and say, how do we profit from it? And, mm -hmm. I, you know, so that compounds it all, in my view. Yeah, and it's also, it's dangerous now because with so many professions switching uh, to working from home, and I'm especially worried about kids, you know, getting their, their school lessons uh, from home, we all are potentially being monitored. You know, there isn't a real standard of privacy. I think we're kind of being acclimatized to having our privacy violated, you know, our homes on display, our sessions recorded, our data collected by, you know, who knows who. And what we really need, um, you know, is government regulation 
investigation or at least uh, monitoring of what these companies are doing. You know, and that's one of the reasons I liked Elizabeth Warren's campaign is because she made that um, a key issue. And I think, you know, if by some miracle Trump is actually ousted, whoever is uh, next, you know, if it's Biden also needs to make that a key issue because they wield far too much control. There's far too much uh, dependency. And we're seeing also a breakdown in how people get resources. You know, we have Amazon warehouses where the workers are basically being abused, but they also can't uh, provide a lot of things anymore. They can't work at the levels they were before. And so people realize their reliance on Amazon, on Instacart, on all these kinds of services is it's both exploitative, but there's also, you know, few alternatives. And as small businesses go out of business, uh, which could be another casualty of this virus, that's going to become uh, dangerous on a kind of, you know, resource hoarding level, like who is able to get food, who's able to get, um, you know, basic products for the household, you know, in a certain period of time, like, those are all questions. We're going to learn the answers to the hard way, um, as things open up and close up. And, you know, I think that'll be how it goes over the year. Well, so, you know, first of all, I want to remind everybody that Sarah's book is called Hiding in Plain Sight, uh, and it, it covers a lot of these issues in some depth, and, and lest you think that, you know, Sarah, or I, for that matter, is suffering from, you know, TDS, um, you know, Sarah's background is in the study of authoritarian regimes. She's uh, been deeply involved in the study of the former Soviet Union. Uh, her experience with this begins there, although also uh, was borne out in experiences as a journalist. Um, one of the things that strikes me, and, and you bring up many of you know stories that are um, you know chilling in terms of how Trump Russia managed to become the Trump presidency, uh, but you know one set of them has to do with something we don't fully know um, the, the details of, and that is the degree to which Russian intervention in 2016 actually changed numbers, right? Mm -hmm. um, and that's relevant six months out from the 2020 election, because we know the Russians are doing it again. And we know that Trump and Barr and the U.S. Senate are actively working to make it easier. Yes, absolutely. Like this was the great untouched subject. People didn't want to look at whether, for example, machines were hacked, whether voter databases were hacked, whether those voters on those databases were turned away. You know, you might have had what I think likely happened in 2016 was a combination of domestic uh, voter suppression, foreign interference, and insecure machines. And in 2016, before the election, as I write in the book, Harry Reid warned that this could happen. He said Russia's intent was to falsify the official results, not just put out bot campaigns or propaganda or even give Trump illegal financial aid. It was to falsify official results. To my knowledge, no one has ever interviewed him about what did that mean and what kind of knowledge did he have. He wrote that in an open letter to James Comey. James Comey uh, has never really addressed that. But over the last few years, in article after article, um, bits of information kind of trickled out. You know, at first they said, oh, a few states had their machines tampered with by Russia. Then it was about half of the states. And then suddenly it's like 50 states, you know, a, a few years later. 
I don't know why Russia would have gone to the lengths of, you know, infiltrating the actual machinery and then just sat there and been like, you know what? Nah, we're good. Like, we're, we're just going to keep it with the propaganda and the bots. We're just going to stay in our lane. I mean, that no one does that. Like, no one makes that kind of effort and then just kicks back and, and decides to be a moral actor. Like, that's, that's absurd. So I think at least the possibilities out there, I think, you know, no one wanted to confront this because it was an unprecedented situation. And I, you know, I don't have proof that they pulled this off. I think it's difficult to prove because I think they're smart enough probably uh, to stay within certain margins in certain states to, you know, nudge them over the line. Um, but if it is the case that that election was illegitimate, that of course then impacts well, what judges did he appoint? What Supreme Court judges did he appoint? Like, what kind of policy decisions has he put into play? Are they all null and void if this election is illegitimate? Four years out is not the time to find that out. Like, I think that th this is why everyone, not just the Democrats, but any kind of conscience, you know, pr principled actor uh, in America should have been investigating this immediately after the election. There should have been a nonpartisan investigative committee. Instead, we had, um, you know, the special counsel eventually. Uh, and, and they basically avoided all questions pertaining to that. And I think that did a grave disservice uh, to the American people and to the integrity of our democracy. Yeah, I should add one of the points in the book that I clearly agree with is that there was this kind of mythologizing of Robert Mueller before he had actually done anything. And uh, there were some aspects of the Mueller investigation um, that raised enormous questions. You've touched on one. Of course, another is that they chose not to look at Trump's financial ties in any real way. And that, of course, is the most compromising of all the information. The president said, this is a red line that can't be crossed. And astonishingly, the Justice Department and the, the truth-seeking special counsel just ignored it, said, yes. okay, it's deeply troubling, especially since there's evidence in the public domain of Trump's long history of being financially backed up and tied to the Russian mafia, uh, in particular, uh, Semyon Mogilevich, the head of the Russian mafia, who Mueller made a speech about in 2011, you know, which I have uh, reprinted in the book, warning officials and the public about transnational organized crime and about this new kind of transnational organized crime that blurred with white collar crime, that blurred with state corruption, it was harder to detect. Um, and he describes a kind of trajectory, a nightmarish trajectory of the erosion of democracy. That's basically where we are right now, where these uh, criminal actors are able to hijack governments and hijack corporations from the inside. And and link them, uh, you know, into criminal activity. So he was well aware of the problem. When I first found that speech, I thought, oh, good, you know, Mueller, Mueller knows about this. He's on top of it. He didn't pursue it. Um, they didn't even bring the context of Trump's history, which, as I said, is all public. There have been numerous, you know, books on it, articles about it. He confesses his crimes himself. I mean, this is a guy who goes up in a press conference and it's like, Russia, get me Hillary Clinton's emails. Like, he's not subtle about this. Uh, there were emails from Sater, emails from Cohen, uh, emails from Donald Trump Jr. Um, you know, a vast array of evidence here. But yeah, Mueller ignored that, also refused to uh, indict or interview key players. The main one I think that's the most dangerous is Jared Kushner. And then uh, most perplexingly to me, 
were the plea deals he made with very dangerous people like Michael Flynn, who was not just working on behalf of Russia, but working on behalf of Turkey, threatening to murder a Turkish cleric on American soil, you know, a long, long list of crimes, uh, you know, getting into nuclear deals, uh, very dangerous guy, you don't want him wandering about. And he's just running free. And, you know, Trump not only wants him to go free, he wants him back in the government, back in the administration. He made an agreement with Mueller that led to nothing. Uh, a lot of people thought Mueller was, you know, rolling people up, like there was some sort of endpoint in mind where this uh, corrupt administration would ultimately be taken down. That just didn't happen. He was just giving people a pass. And I think that folks need to look long and hard at how the probe played out. We know what happened with the report. We know Bill Barr, um, you know, lied about that report, summarized it incorrectly, uh, and that the Trump administration was very adept at framing that as Mueller exonerates Trump and, and other lies. You know, that didn't happen. But um, the, the probe itself, I, I found to be very problematic. And I got increasingly worried as 2018, uh, early 2019 went on that nothing was going to come of this in terms of justice. Yeah, I would point out also again, um, and if you pick up Sarah's book and you, and, you, and you know something about Sarah, you know, she's not just talking uh, through her hat about Turkey. You lived in Turkey, you, you, you lived in Vienna, you've spent a lot of time overseas. One of the things that I, I was struck by actually in that uh, 2011 Mueller speech was the reference to this is not the Sopranos, you know, shaking somebody down for 50 bucks at the corner store. And I think one of the things that people need to keep in perspective when they're talking about Russian organized crime is that, you know, the person who's overseeing all of that ultimately is Putin, who's the richest man in the world. Mm -hmm. And this is not, you know, organized crime like you see it in, in the movies. This is ma major global corporation that operates at, you know, with a very, very high level of sophistication and, and power. We've only got a couple of minutes left. Um, and, you know, I, I, I guess what I'd like to do is, uh, to wrap it up is um, one of the striking things about your perspectives on all of this comes from where you are, um, which again, you amusingly note in the book, people think because you live in Missouri and you live on a farm um, in, in St. Louis where there are, you know, not, no farms to my, to my knowledge. Uh, but you've written about, and your last book was primarily about this, this perspective from flyover country. How does COVID-19 look in this very red state um, that, that, that you live in? And how, based on that, do you think it's going to change the politics of a place like Missouri? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm worried about Missouri because what our governor, who's a little Trump lackey, he, he replaced the previous governor who was indicted for a number of crimes. Um, what he's doing is trying to kind of make a divide between the cities and uh, the rural areas. Whereas in reality, the rural areas and the cities have been following their own guidelines, which is basically to, to close things down, uh, you know, to try to actually take care of the virus. You know, he does things, Parson, my governor, like the, the other day he said, Missouri will now be allowed to hold concerts and that got him all this praise from the, the Trump crowd but what actually happens is that any location that would have a big concert like St. Louis Kansas City Branson they're all like no we're not doing that and so there's nothing left like there's a tiny little area of you know Missouri that Parson is actually left to govern even they're pissed 
there's a rural country county uh, in the Ozarks that has basically sealed its borders. They're like, get these people out, get these tourists out. We've got no coronavirus here. We want to keep it that way. The governor sucks. And these are basically Republicans. These are folks who don't tend to uh, vote for Democrats. They're still frustrated with them. So it's, it is very annoying. What I do worry about, because uh, we have an election coming up, is that this won't make a difference in our elections. Because as I write in the book, Missouri is a cesspool of dark money, of propaganda, of gerrymandering. So even if folks are very frustrated with uh, how he is handling this crisis, um, it may not matter in the end because the integrity of the election itself is in question. Yeah, uh, well, no question. I think uh, you've got to follow Sarah to uh, you know keep an eye on these stories. They are too too often overlooked, particularly on the coasts, uh, because you know they are the roots of these long term changes that we have seen. Sarah's book is called Hiding in Plain Sight. You can hear from Sarah every week uh, on Gaslit Nation, and she also writes regularly. Uh, so, uh, you know, definitely I would encourage you to turn to that as well. Uh, hopefully we'll have you back again to talk to us soon, Sarah. Uh, and hopefully things will have somehow, and I don't know how, taken a turn for the better by then. I hope so for you too. Thank you very much. Uh, folks, if you want more on what we're doing this week and every week, go to the DSR network. Uh, we've got our regular schedule plus special broadcasts like this one throughout the crisis. Um, and, uh, you know, if you feel so inclined, go, you know, become a member right now. The membership benefit, and we'll send you one of these, Sarah, includes the Deep State Radio face mask to help make you safe. So now that's something, you know, everybody, everybody should want to wear. So go become a member, go to the website, buy Sarah's book, Hiding in Plain Sight. Thank you very much and stay healthy, everybody.